The readings from Acts chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Good morning, good to see you. Please have that passage on your lap again. And I want to tell you what we're looking at. Uh, we are looking at the first sermon this morning. It's kind of long. And so we're looking at uh, a summary, which is right at the end of Peter's message. I want us to look in particular at verses 36 down to verses 39. Because there you've got a, a condensed compendium, you could say. A condensation, a distilled essence of what Peter's been talking about for quite a long time. The day of Pentecost happened just 2,000 years ago, give or take a few years. And Peter gets up verse 14 that we didn't read, but I encourage you to read the whole sermon at some point. That sentence is 14 through to uh, sentence 41. Peter gets up to uh, defend, to refute, to engage with his hearers. That's uh, a, a whole bunch of of uh, Jewish people that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the holy feasts, the feast and celebration of Pentecost. But uh, just four words for your attention, if uh, if you believe that, you believe anything. But just four words, there's four titles. Here they are, mind, grace, heart, life. Mind, grace, heart, life. If you want to become a Christian this morning, if you are a Christian this morning, these four words, mind, grace, heart and life. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to go on being a Christian or even to become a Christian this morning. And those four themes and sentences really just saturate the whole of this first sermon from Peter. Remember him who let Jesus down so much. Remember how Jesus restored him so gracefully. Remember him who's standing up and preaching the first sermon. Because God loves to use broken people. Four words, mind, grace, heart, life. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Verse 36, the mind, to become a Christian, to go on being a Christian, to go on trusting the Lord Jesus one day at a time. It's an issue of the mind. Sentence 36, verse 36. Therefore, says Peter, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
So Peter at this moment is talking to a whole bunch of Jewish people. They've gathered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would just swell as a city at certain times of year whether it be Pentecost, whether it be Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, any holy day celebrated in the Jewish calendar, that would mean Jerusalem would just swell to brimming. It would double. It would triple in size. You could not get an Airbnb for love nor money. You wouldn't be able to get a parking space for your Zephira or for your camel. It was slammed in Jerusalem. And notice who's there. A whole bunch of Jewish people. So these are people who believed the Old Testament. They believed the the Hebrew Scriptures, the first half of the Bible. And notice, therefore, how Peter deliberately speaks to people who believed the Bible and who were schooled in Jewish history. Look at what he calls them. Verse 14, eyes down please. Fellow Jews. 22. Men of Israel. Brothers, in sentence 29, verse 36, therefore let all Israel, Peter knows his audience. Peter's speaking to Jewish people who know their Bible, who are, who are familiar with Old Testament stories and who know the God of Israel. And so he's absolutely unashamed at going straight for the Hebrew Bible. Let, let me tell you about the Hebrew Bible because you're schooled in it, you understand it, you can read it, you're well versed in it. So let me tell you about who Jesus is in this first sermon, says Peter. I'm going to take you to, uh, look at sentence uh, 25, please. Where where does he go? I'm going to tell you about David and how David, in Psalm 16, well, David couldn't be referring to himself, could he, in Psalm 16, sentence 25? Uh, Okay, well, here's another point. Look at uh, sentence 34, verse 34 with me. We've been to Psalm 16, Jewish hearers. Now I'm going to take you to Psalm 110. Who is David thinking about? David is king of all of Israel, and yet David speaks of a greater king. Who could David be speaking about? You know the Old Testament. You're familiar with the Hebrew Bible. So I'm going to speak to you and make a a judicial case. I'm going to speak to you explaining and outlining and giving you different angles and explanation on the person who the whole of the Hebrew Bible points to. And his name is Jesus He's like a kind of a court of law. He's, he's like a, um, someone who's making his case and he's doing a remarkable thing by saying, if you understand the Hebrew Bible, let me just sum up. Here's my closing argument and it's in sentence 36. Here's my closing argument. I've been to Psalm uh, 16, Psalm 110. I've explained what happened at Pentecost through the prophet Joel and all of that means this. Sentence 36. Let all Israel... Be assured of this, God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. All of that means this. If you know the Old Testament, then you should understand to whom it points to. And that's not all. Look back at sentence 32, verse 32. He, that's Jesus, was raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this fact. What's Peter doing in this first sermon? Peter's appealing to the mind. If you understand the Bible, then here's a logical conclusion of who the person of Jesus was predicted to be and who's been revealed to be and who's been raised to be. That's who Jesus is. It's historical evidence. 
Look at verse 32. We're witnesses. We've seen him. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 4. We've eaten food with him. This is only uh, seven, eight weeks after the ascension of Jesus. And so Peter can say, let's, ex- let's explain the Old Testament, but then let's come right up to date. Just 50, 49, 50 days, 50 days ago, you were there, you heard him, you saw him. Some of you ate meals with him. And his name is Jesus. Something has happened in history, Peter says to his audience, and you need to deal with it. You need to uh, respond to it. You need to acknowledge it. Your own knowledge and experience of who Jesus has revealed himself to be, well, that engages with your mind. Friends, anyone who's become a Christian needs to engage with the mind. You need to engage with the evidence that's there in history. Is it reliable? Can I uh, take it to the bank? Is it something that you can uh, verify? Is there a case for Christ or not? And thousands of people throughout the history of the ages have looked at the evidence, beginning with the mind, and said, this is something I can build my life upon. There's irrefutable evidence for the person of Jesus. And that's where Peter begins, by looking at the Old Testament, (coughs) and then by saying, and your witnesses right up to date, just 50 days ago, Jesus was here. Because Christianity always addresses the mind. That's not where it ends. Secondly, Christianity is always about grace. 36 again. Therefore let all Israel know that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, Lord and Christ. Here's Peter, he's looking back on everything that's happened in the Old Testament and in the short period of time as well. And he says every sentence of the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible. He's the culmination of every theme wedded through the Bible. He's the true and better version of every character that points to Jesus in the Bible. I mean, Matthew, Matthew who writes a gospel, he constructs and crafts carefully the whole of his gospel to say that Jesus is the new Moses. Five big sermons that come. Uh, Jesus who's taken up on a mountain, who receives and then who speaks the word of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the new Moses but he's greater than Moses. The Apostle Paul, who says Jesus is the new Adam, Adam who was tempted in the Garden of Eden to turn away from God, and he did. Jesus is the new Adam who, when he was tempted, he obeyed. And then here's Peter, and Peter is saying, let me tell you, Jewish friends who adore David, who are steeped in the history of Israel, let me tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is the true and better David. If you think David was great, let me tell you about Jesus. And so he goes to Psalm 16 in verse 25. And what does David say? I saw the Lord. He was always before me. Now this is a scary story. So we tell it to the kids. But let me tell you to adults as well. There was once a king called David. He was a boy. And there was an almighty Man, he was he's like a giant, because he was a giant. Someone's smiling already because they know the story. He was fighting against 
Goliath, a giant of a man. Young David, perhaps just a teenager, enrooted. Imagine this, you could perhaps act this out this afternoon with David's Goliath. Take some, no, don't take some stones. Take some foam balls and see if you can knock Dave over. But uh, David had the courage of God because he saw as the Lord's anointed. Here we have Goliath, this huge man, who's standing against the authority and glory of his God, the God of the universe. He knew it might uh, take his life. He was prepared to take the risk. And so he took five smooth stones and he slayed, he slayed Goliath. And his victory was given to all of Israel. All the fighting men of Israel were cowering in their boots. And here's, here's a young man with the courage of God and the strength of God and the conviction of God's honour and glory. And he went up against the foe of God and he struck him down. And God got all the glory. But Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus did not just go out against one uh, foe. He went out against the two foes of sin and death. Verse 23, Jesus did not risk his life against these terrible foes on the cross. Jesus was in complete control when he willingly handed over his life into the hands of wicked men. And he defeated on the cross sin and death. And his victory and all the benefits of that was given to anyone that would put their trust in him. He didn't risk his life, he gave his life. But then look at verse 32. He was raised from the grave by his father. And then verse 33. He was exalted to his right hand in heaven. David did not ascend, but Jesus did. David faced death. Jesus faced death and punched a hole through it, as C.S. Lewis said, and was raised to life again. This incredible victory that David had was for the benefit of all Israel. This incredible victory that the one to whom David pointed to is for the benefit, it's imputed, it's given to everyone that had trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verse 34, Peter quotes Psalm 110, showing Jesus is the true and better David. Now why do preachers, why do teachers, why do wonderful ladies teaching in a whole range of contexts, why do they go to the Old Testament and say it all points to Jesus. Because the Bible is about grace. The Bible is full of lots of good advice. Lots of dietary practices that are helpful and healthy. Lots of ethical constructs that are good for society. You could read the Bible. And it's all about you. It's about what you do. Or you can read the Bible. And you can see every sentence whispers his name. It's not about what you do about what God in Christ has done. And so Jesus has come on a rescue mission. So if you think it's about performance, well, you're wrong. It's not about your performance. It's all about the grace of God and the performance of Jesus who died in our place. He was raised to life for the glory of God and for our great and ultimate good. We need to do, Christian friends, what Peter is giving such an excellent example of. We need to read the Bible with, with spectacles, not from Specsavers or from Amazon Prime, Delivered Tomorrow, product placement alert. We need to read the Bible with gospel spectacles to see that Jesus is the one who's promised and the one who's arrived and the one who's raised to life again and the one who will return again to judge the living and the dead. Every sentence whispers his name. See, the gospel 
it's about the mind, it's about the grace of God. Thirdly, it's also, it's also about the heart. Look at verse 37 now, getting to the end of the message. Peter's gone to the Old Testament a number of times. He's explained your witnesses. He's explained that you were there when Jesus died on the cross. And what does he say? Verse 37, when the people heard this, when they're getting to the end of his message, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart comes up very rarely in the Bible. Literally, it's a word that uh, when someone takes a cleaver and divides something into two parts, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a really significant word of division and of openness and of intimacy. That God alone does something when this happens, when people are cut to the heart. It's showing that you can't just pick up Christianity when you think you're in trouble. It's not religious insurance, it's not a hobby that you just entertain when you're bored. Christianity picks you up into a greater narrative. When, when Christ comes into your life, there's a power that comes. And there's a person that comes in who's the Holy Spirit. So cutting to the heart means God does something. God comes, God came at Pentecost, and God comes into the life of every believer and literally cleaves your heart. It's a supernatural activity. Look at verse 23. I want you to know, says Peter, that you put Jesus, him, to death with wicked hands. You put him to death. Now, Jerusalem was full. Remember, it's swollen two, three times the size of occupants. It was just cheek and jowl. You were just so close. You couldn't, no social distancing in Jerusalem at that time. But here were people listening to this message. There were thousands of them. They may not have been there seven or eight weeks earlier shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But Peter says, no, you were there in spirit. If you were there, you would have shouted the same words. You, you all, are representative of all of humanity. We all would have crucified Jesus if we were there. When you were standing there, you would have called the same things. You would have shouted the same abuse. You would long for him to be out of your life. You want to be in charge. My world, my rules. Crucify him. And that's the very sign of when you're becoming Christian. God... When you become a Christian, God goes to work on your mind. He convinces you that the Bible is true. He, he reveals his grace to you and he cleaves your heart. And you realise, yeah, if I was there, I would have said the same thing. Sin becomes no longer abstract. Yeah, I, I think I understand that the world is wrong. The problem is not out there. The problem's in here. But you can talk about that and discuss it at an abstract theoretical level. When God turns up in your life, when you're cut to the heart, your sin becomes real to you. It becomes personal. It's not an abstraction anymore. Luke, who wrote Acts, also wrote a gospel called Luke by the same name. And Luke 22, you've got a, the time when, when Peter is in, he's in the camera focus. Jesus is being put on trial, this mock trial, and Peter is right in the centre of the camera lens. And Peter's being asked three times by different people, do you know this person, Jesus? And he's denying that he knows Jesus. I've never heard of him. No, I've not been with him. No, never seen him before. And there's one point in Luke chapter 22 
verse 60 to 61, where somehow Jesus locks eyes with Peter. Luke is the only one who records it. I've had nothing to do with him. He must have felt guilty and uh, anxious and fearful as Jesus looks Peter straight in the eye and says this. Peter went out and wept. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus looked him square in the eye as the rooster crowed as he denied Jesus three times just as Jesus said he would. And Peter said, there's no way, even if everyone else does it, I never will. And Peter did. He looks him right in the eye and I'm sure Peter at that point was cut to the heart. I'm sure Peter realised the gravity of what he was saying, disowning Jesus who he said he loved. Look, if you see Jesus as a harsh lawgiver, if you see Jesus as a headmaster in heaven, I've broken his rules, I've trod on the grass when he said I shouldn't have done, uh, uh, everything he said I've just ignored. If you see Jesus just like that, that he's against you and not for you, then sin is just breaking the rules. But if you see Jesus as who he is, as God who loves you and who is for you and whose heart is towards you, rather than stepping back, when you sin, you're not just stepping on the grass or breaking the rules. When you see Jesus for who he is, actually you're breaking his heart. That's when sin becomes personal. That means that God, by the Holy Spirit, is cleaving your heart. You haven't just broken the rules, you've broken his heart in breaking the rules. Friends, when you realise that we've all turned from him, but he didn't let us go. When you see the Bible as a, as a love letter rather than a, an A to Z of self-help. When you realise what kept Jesus on the cross was not nails, but his own love for his father and therefore for you. When you realise it's your actions that meant that Jesus had to go to the cross, when you see that your sin becomes personal and so your heart begins to melt as it's cleaved by the Holy Spirit, then you begin to change. That's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Which leads us to the fourth part, the final part. Life. Fourth word, life. Verse 38 and verse 39, what shall we do, say these thousands of people that have heard this sermon from Peter? Four things. First, you need to repent. You need to get forgiveness, says Peter, because there's a new freedom that you can enjoy under the, the lordship of Jesus. Here's the second thing you need to do. There's a new community that you can be a part of. So I want you to be baptised, says Peter. Get, get hold of this new family, these new brothers, these new sisters, and it's called the church. Here's the third thing. God will send the Holy Spirit into your heart. There's a new power available for change. There's a freedom you had before. There's a new family to belong to. There's power to change. Beforehand, you would say, I'm going to change. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. And you keep doing it. But when you become a Christian, there are real resources for change by the Spirit of God. It cuts you to the heart. Here's the fourth thing. Verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Remember Peter is speaking to Jewish people, men of Israel, brothers, all that stuff. The Jews thought they were better than other people. We're so much better than those Gentiles. Those, those Gentile dogs is a phrase that we find in the Bible. 
Peter's saying, no, he's not having any of it. Jesus has come for the Jews and the Gentiles, for those who are near the Jews, those who are called far off, that's the Gentiles. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And so they will become your brothers and sisters, says Peter to the Jewish hearers. The mind has changed, the grace of God is understood. There's a power that comes and a life that is given. George Whitfield was a cross-eyed intellectual in the 18th century. He was a posh man from Oxford. He had a great mind and he had an even bigger heart for the things of God. He was deeply concerned that in the 18th century people were not coming into church. I don't understand why they're not coming in. And he had the most radical idea ever. He said, if people aren't coming in, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach the gospel in the open air. Don't do it. No one will ever come. Through George Whitfield and others, God's word went out and it changed the nation in the Great Awakening. There's a place just on the outside of Bristol called Kingswood, and there's a mining community. Hard men who'd be under the ground for hours and hours every day. Terrible places to work. It was miserable. They had black lungs from everything they breathed in. And yet George Whitfield, by the Spirit of God, had the, the courage that was given to him by God to go and to preach to them. I mean, just imagine these hard blokes, big muscles, black soot all over their faces, and then in comes this, this gentryman, this clergyman, who would have had a powdered wig on his head, who would have had his, uh, his clergy, clergy robes that he was wearing, and he says, come, come to me, I want, I want to preach to you, I want to tell you about Jesus. He was crazy. Then hundreds of men gathered, thousands of men gathered, and he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel just as Peter preached the gospel. And the same thing happened. Thousands of men became Christians. And with their black faces from all the soot, the story is told in the biography of how there were streams of white as tears came from the eyes of the men who heard the gospel. Why? Because they were cut to the heart. And they understood the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus. Eyewitnesses said there were streams of white on the soot-covered faces. We're all very different temperatures. We come from different cultures. We've got different stories to tell. One of the signs you become a Christian, despite of our temperaments, is that when the truth of God comes, when we're cut to the heart, there are tears. They may be on your cheek, they may be inside your spirit, but that's what happens when the gospel is preached. And on that day, thousands of men and women, boys and girls, became Christians.